0: Open our lips, O God, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. If by chapter 2 they are plotting to kill you, yet you know it's not an easy path ahead. And that's what we are experiencing today. And it's likely not a coincidence that we get this story today. Jason Chambers, a couple of weeks ago, reminded us of how the liturgical calendar works, that from Advent through Ascension is really the story of God manifest in the flesh of Jesus and how after Ascension and Pentecost, the second part of the year is God manifest in the flesh of us, the body of Christ. As Jesus says, just as I, you will actually do greater things. And the church is being very pastoral to say in the second Sunday after Pentecost, much like the second chapter of Mark, be careful what you pray for. Now it's easy, and and we often like to remind ourselves about the Pharisees, because it's easy when we hear these stories to put ourselves in the camp of, I certainly would have been with Jesus that day. I certainly wouldn't have been as obstinate, as ugly, as non-compassionate, as that group of Pharisees were that day. I mean, don't you want someone to be healed? I don't care what day of the week it is. And it's easy for us to put ourselves in that group and say, us good, Pharisees bad. And on one level in this story, Mark is offering us a huge warning and saying, don't ever think you can't find yourselves here. Because remember who the Pharisees are. These were the folks, again, 100 years before Jesus, who would have been called the progressives, who themselves went to the institutional leaders and said, you have made the law so cumbersome, emotionally, spiritually, and economically, because of how much money you have to have to be able to pay for the sacrifices, which cuts out a whole group of people. And you have made it so cumbersome that you are yanking away massive amounts of folks from God, from the law, from faithfulness. They were the reformers of their day, and now it's a hundred years later, and the scene has shifted, and it's Jesus saying to them, Do you understand what you are doing? But for Mark, it's a warning. Remember who they were, some of whom still are, and don't ever think yourself above this. Because what's going on today is not some kind of a cognitive debate. At some point, if you could have taken the Pharisees out and shown a mirror, they would have probably been aghast. Because in fact, Jesus is trying to say to them, folks, one, I'm not breaking the law because actually there was a distinction in the law that you could pluck grains of wheat, you just couldn't make bread. But their mind has already gone past that. He is reminding them that the law allowed for health versus unhealth and says to them, wouldn't Wouldn't you think God would rather be about healing than keeping someone in harm? And, of course, they're silent because they realize the catch-22 they're in. And if that's not enough, he not only quotes Scripture to them, he quotes the tradition, says, look, even David did what I did. But they're not moved. I've said this before. Jesus goes from Scripture, tradition, and appeals to their reason. He's a good Anglican. But again, what's happening is this isn't some kind of cognitive thing. He has struck some kind of an emotional nerve in them that has caused them collectively by the second chapter to work for his destruction. And Mark's saying, please do not think you couldn't do that. Because all of us have enough things that frighten us that given enough collective energy, we'll find ourselves moving from those who thought themselves as progressive to suddenly acting in ways we don't even recognize. So it's a warning. Don't put yourselves above these folks. It's a call to humility. It's a call to contemplation. How are we aware of all the things that drive us? It's Jesus who says with affirmation, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, Reflect, be careful, think about things, pray about things, because even the most devout will find themselves not recognizing themselves. There's another part of the story that is important for me. He looked around with them at anger, with anger. And he speaks to them from his anger. Now, we do know there are parts in the Gospels where Jesus, it seems, takes a time to breathe in his anger, where he realizes, I need a few moments to catch my breath, because if I say what's right now going on in my head, it's probably not going to be helpful. But we have just as many times where Jesus has the sense that he is aware of his anger, connected to his anger, and connected to what the roots are of that anger and why this is a healthy time to speak in his anger. You know, you don't have to be just good Southerners saying, well, bless their heart, you know, we just don't like to talk about anger. I know Yankees shouldn't do that. I should have lived in the South. To talk like that, I understand. We have other sayings in the North for, yeah, never mind. But we certainly need, as a community of faith to know how to speak from anger because there will be times when we have not to sit and pause and go be nice folks but to be in touch with and aware of and clear enough about what our anger is about to speak from it. That there are just some things that need to be addressed. And Jesus is looking at them and he's realizing I'm not going to go on retreat and come back and find a nice, thoughtful, good shepherd way to talk to you. This is the moment, and we have to figure out how to talk about what you've succumbed to now. I'm wondering about his anger, and this is where it gets dangerous. Whenever we project on what people are thinking or feeling, that's more dangerous than playing the lottery with a $1,000. But I'm wondering if there aren't a few things. Certainly, Jesus is looking at them and saying, you would rather me not heal somebody. You would rather not live out what our texts say about turning the tables and writing that which is wrong so we can have some kind of semblance of order. I'm wondering also if part of it isn't his own distress Because we know that he pretty much is in agreement that he was raised by the Pharisees. That they were the ones that he learned the texts from. And it's part of me that sees him looking at them and saying, you're the ones who taught me this. You're the ones who taught me that this is what God is about. And now not only are you not around, but now you want to destroy me. I learned this from you. Whatever's going on in his head... He's clear enough to know that there is a time to talk from anger. We said in the Collect, help us not to do anything hurtful. How do we learn to talk from anger that is not violent, yet still talking from our anger? Help me with that, because I need it. So on the one hand, this is a story that is about warning us not to get too full of ourselves, that we would always choose Jesus' side. It's a story about how do communities, let alone individuals, operate in their anger. But it's also a story about what people who experience resistance for following Jesus should expect. Here's what Paul is also feeling today in the text. Again, by chapter 2 of Mark, it's already taking place. Early in the life of the church, there is already resistance and violent physical resistance, and you need to be aware of it. And so Paul offers us this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Paul's letter and Mark's text are a pastoral letter to the church saying, No, this is what happens. Know this is what takes place. If you follow Jesus, it will indeed generate conflict. And do know that by the second chapter of your chosen journey, you're going to experience it. So I find myself asking, what does it take to live as Mark calls? What does it take to live as Paul calls for here? not getting crushed, not being destroyed, carrying in our life the death of Jesus that also therefore manifests the life of God. And I realize there's nothing new here about what it takes when you look at Jesus. First of all, Jesus doesn't travel alone. And it's not just the disciples and the Marys. We know he has lots of friends with some of the other Pharisees The conversation with Nicodemus isn't a casual coincidence. It's because he has these relationships with those wisdom people in his own community that he checks in with. It's because he is looking at his own power and he says to his friends, who are people saying that I am? Help me because I don't know what to do with this power that I am experiencing. And I know I could do some pretty amazing things, but I know I could just have a scorched earth policy if I really wanted to. Who am I? Help me know who I am. And he doesn't dare tackle those questions alone. Always with others. And Something else about the people he walks with, they're an eclectic bunch. A word for our day where it is too easy to get into our ghettos of theology and politics. Jesus just keeps hearing the life of God from all kinds of different people. The second thing Jesus seems to do is that he consumes the texts of his community. He doesn't just hear them. He doesn't just repeat them. It's not some kind of, of Jewish sword drill who can quote the most scripture. He ingests the scriptures so they're part of his being, part of his cellular makeup, so that when they start getting at him with the scriptures, he's like, do you not remember? Didn't you travel with David when you read those scriptures? This is real. This is our flesh. This isn't some kind of of, of board game. And so I find myself wondering, what does it take in our day for us to consume our texts, not just hear them and be able to quote them, but to ingest them into our being so that when that resistance comes, we're not just doing some kind of challenge tv show but we're living something that we have ingested something we have relationship with something else jesus does he regularly goes off to quiet places but not just alone we know about that but what do we hear in the story today jesus was in the synagogue how many stories start with jesus was in the synagogue and this took place and what that tells me So Jesus went to church. It's as simple as that. He went to church because he knew, if I'm not with you all, dealing with all the the white noise craziness of me, let alone the white noise craziness of the world, I'm going to go nuts. And I'm going to start succumbing to myself in a way that's going to make me look like the Pharisees. I'm not even going to recognize who I am. I've got to go to church. I've got to be with you all, and you all got to be with me, and Jesus is saying all that kind of stuff. We've got to do this together, and we've got to find places to be quiet together. Because if we don't, all that crazy white noise that is in us, inherently in us, won't have time to catch up to us, and we'll just keep acting out of it. How many of you are old enough to remember the driver's ed cars with two steering wheels? Anybody? I know. Maybe I shouldn't. Right. Okay, here we are. AARP range people. Yes, here we are. Thank you. Thank you, Todd, for that moment. And the whole theory of that was that, you know, you who were learning had your driver a wheel, and then the teacher had their wheel, and that if things got a little dicey, you know, they could gently, or maybe not gently, but they could steer, and, and you know, you're probably sitting there thinking, I'm really doing this much better than I thought. <laughs> not even aware of the person next to you is going, whoa, whoa, whoa. wow. And I think that's how the white noise craziness of the world is going on right now, and it went in Jesus' time as well. That we're all kind of going along, and we're thinking, you know, I'm really doing much better than I thought. Not realizing that this part of our brain has just taken over. And it's saying, you don't even know what's going on and you're not stopping long enough to figure it out. So I'm just going to take over. And then that friend comes up to you in a meeting and says, do you need a little break? Not that that's ever happened. And that's why Jesus went to church, not because his parents told him to, because he knew if he didn't get quiet with the people, if he didn't get alone and together, There was no space for that white noise to catch up and go, yeah, what is this that's driving me these days? How do I not just find myself one more Pharisee who doesn't even recognize myself if I stopped long enough? Some friends that I like to call when I'm particularly nuts, because I know they're not just going to pat me on the back. And I know they have a tolerance for my nutsness. Sometimes it's in person, sometimes it's on the phone. I only imagine their expressions on the phone when I call. And inevitably what they come up with at some point, usually faster than slower, is they'll get to this question in one manner or another. They'll say, what's at stake for you here? Which is a great discerning question and is one of those that helps get out of the back of the neck part of the brain to stop and pause and sift through, what's going on here? What's at stake? What's important for me here? What's actually driving me more than I'm driving it? It's one of those helpful questions to say, am I just running with the Pharisees or am I angry because of something God's calling? And what's the mixture of all of it? That's what Jesus does. So we're only in the second of the 16th chapter of Mark, and they're already coming to kill Jesus. And we who are gathered here today, faithful, beloved, why should we expect anything less? If we're following Jesus on this second day after Pentecost, why should we expect any less kind of resistance in our own bodies as well as in the culture? Because if we follow Jesus, this is what we will find. And if we follow Jesus, this is also what we will find. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies.